Hello, this is Doug with a special guest star, <laughs> one Alyssa Marr. Hi. Welcome to a special holiday card. While Karen gets some much-needed rest, we are going to walk you through several of the most recent shows we have seen. We are doing it for you. <laughs> Where would you like to start, hon? Um, do we want to talk about Dairy Girls real quick? We don't have to talk about it real quick, but we can talk about Dairy Girls. Season 2 just dropped on Netflix. So let's talk about this Irish import. Sure. Do you like it? I do. I love it. Um, yeah, I do. I love it. It's, season 2 is just like season 1. It's six episodes, and they're all about 20 to 25 minutes. Yeah, yeah. It's like most anything. are 22, 23 minutes long. We watched all six of them yesterday morning. Um, really easy to sit through. Yeah, like really easy to watch in one sitting. I think we watched the first season all in one Friday night. Um, they move really quick. Yeah. They're all they're all pretty much self-contained episodes. Very funny. Um, it's set in the mid-90s. Yeah. Yeah, it's got to be like 94 or so, yeah, right? Yeah. Lots of cranberries on the soundtrack. Um, set in Derry, in Northern Ireland, during the Troubles. Um, and it follows... Essentially, one, I think they're about 16, but one 16-year-old girl and her family um, and her group of friends at an all-girls Catholic college, they say, but really it's a high school. They're high school age, and Um, and this group of all-girls does include one boy. Yeah, he's a dairy girl, though. He's a dairy girl. (laughs) Um, And the shenanigans they get into, and like I said, they're real, the episodes are self-contained, so one episode is like them at the prom, and one episode is them trying to get to take that concert. concert. Um, yeah, it's very traditional sitcom very kind traditional of story. Sitcom. Yeah, it's about the situation, but but each episode reminds you of the strength of the friends' bond, even when they're sort of at odds with each other. Um, and, you know, and there are nice glimpses of the parents as well. Yeah, and the cast is really terrific. Yeah, they're great. Very natural. Um, very natural. The writing is really top notch. It's written, created, and written by Lisa McGee, McGee. Who's a playwright, um, based in the UK. It's like it's a very funny, kind of relatable because I went to an all girls Catholic high school, so there's things that I think are really funny. And kind of um, relatable for me because I'm like almost exactly the same age as the Dairy Girls. Right, right, and. And it's a lot of fun 90s music. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so, 90s some references. of the fads. Yeah. 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 Um, it's a very quick uh, sit through to, to watch. Um, and Dairy Girls definitely was on like my top five or six um, of last season for season one. Um, and I imagine the season will, will also be as well. I, I, I highly recommend it. Yeah, it's a huge hit in. It's like Ireland their biggest and, thing, according to yeah, you. Yeah, it is. And it's coming back for a third season, and it's super huge hit in uh, in the UK and, and in Ireland and deservedly so um yeah yeah so that's a big recommend that's four big thumbs up yes. for Dairy Girls start with season one go right into season two it's the same amount of time that you could watch a flea bag um you can get it done very quickly and I think it's very satisfying it is, and you you do have to pay attention because sometimes the accents are a little thick and it moves fast, but it's totally um, rewarding. Absolutely. And there's no and huge, it's funny. And yeah. there's no huge like 
names in the cast, so it's there's no none of that distraction. I think the biggest name is uh, the guy who played Barrister Selmy on Game of Thrones, right? So not yeah. So, so no, it's a it's a true ensemble. Yeah. So we love it, Dairy yes, Girls. We Dairy love you. <laughs> and from Northern Ireland, we go back to Broadway or off Broadway. Would you rather do? Broadway Bounty Hunter. Hunter we should probably talk about that first because that's the one that's uh, closest to uh, leaving us. Shucks. So, I've talked before about how I have certain feelings about the show Be More Chill. Um, they're not good feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, the Several of the creative people involved in that show are also involved in Broadway Bounty Hunter, namely um, the composer Joe Iconis. So, a year or so ago, this show ran up in the Berkshires, and now it has come to to downtown New York. It is ostensibly a vehicle for the for the broad for the for the for the musical veteran Annie Golden, who we also talked about last week, has been a character on Orange Is the New Black. Um, but when I say veteran, I mean you know with a lot of holes in her resume and long gaps in appearances, I'd say, on the stage. So, Annie Golden plays a version of Annie Golden who is hard to cast and um, is ultimately brought into a life as a bounty hunter by a group of people that um, have these marks, these targets that they're trying to find. And essentially, mayhem ensues. What it does is try and I guess subvert some of the black exploitation and kung fu movies that were like B minus C plus films in the seventies and first half of the eighties. Um, but I feel like it really just retraces the sort of like asinine steps of those plots more than anything. Yeah, and I, I spoke about this last week about the Rolling Stone and the fact that it was a play set in Uganda with African characters written by a white guy. Like, I don't know why Joe Iconis and Jason Sweet Tooth Williams. Williams and Lance Rubin, who wrote the book. Yeah, this thing has three book writers. Um, who are all white guys, feel the need to reclaim black exploitation and kung fu movies. Like, they're not theirs to reclaim. So I don't really know what their... I don't really know what their end goal was. Like, and they, there's also this rhyme theme, and it's, like, become the, like, hashtag or the, tra- the like, what's the word I'm looking for? Signature? The sing- like. The gimmick. The gimmick, like, smash the patriarchy. The catchphrase is the really catchphrase, it. The catchphrase, yeah. yeah. Um, the tagline, I guess. Uh, smash the patriarchy, because we're supposed to, we're, like, the show starts, we're watching Annie Golden. Um, audition for shows and and sort of encounter this. You're not right. You're too old. We're going another direction. Like um, upon first sight, they're like, "No, we don't want you." That sort of thing. Yeah, and throughout the show, she's supposed to learn how to like love herself and get and grow and yeah. become stronger and smash the patriarchy. But it's not. It's really surfacey. It's like we have to like. Include yeah, I mean, that's a very cultural theme right now, that, but 
this is not what that show but is they about. they don't really, like, do enough, like, there is an issue with women of a certain age, and that's actually the opening number and closing number of the show, mm-hmm. uh, women of a certain age, but, like, women, not even of a certain age, but, like, 35 and up who don't get cast in things, there's no opportunities for them. Um, so it is a, a problem that's been around for a long time, both on screen and on stage, but I don't think Broadway Bounder Hunter does anything below the surface to no, really comment no. on it. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a very silly show. And we've compared it to, well, you know, there's the New York Fringe Festival. There are these, you know, like, showcases yeah, for shows that aren't feels, really ready for for it feels like a, a bigger skit. stage. Yeah. It feels like a skit. Um, very low-hanging fruit. Low-hanging fruit. It's a lot of just, so we're just going to belt our faces off because it sounds impressive. And um, cheap production values. And it's the cheapest thing I've seen in a long time. Cliched choreography. And let's not forget the songs that Joe Iconis writes. Each song is a year and a half long. Yeah, like I said, there has to be some happy medium between Duncan Sheik's very short songs and Joe Iconis's very long songs. It runs about two hours with an intermission. It should be 90 minutes. Um, and, And really the problem is, and Annie Golden, I have no problem with Annie Golden. Um, I'm sort of indifferent to her. But she's always been hard to cast. Yes. And, like, if Mary Testa, for example, were in the role... Who is truly a veteran and is great. Yeah, and has worked consistently. um, I'd be like, well, this makes sense. But Annie Golden was never... Never easy. She's never... She was never Sutton Foster, you know. She was never easy to cast. She... Like Doug said, she's had holes in her resume you know, throughout like the decade. She was a sporadically working actress. So, it, it's like, so what? It really is, like, so what? Like, I think Annel Nathan, who has worked a lot steadier than Annie, Annie Golden, Golden over the years, is her stamp, or not her stamp, but her alternate. I guess she does the Wednesday and Saturday matinees. She makes more sense to me because... I mean, Anna Nathan has done so many shows that it would make sense for her to suddenly stop being cast and things. So, I don't know, Annie Golden, it's nice she has this vehicle. It's nice, she, I've never seen her in a starring role before. I don't even know if she's ever had one. So it's nice that she's gotten one. Yeah. But ultimately it amounts to nothing. Yeah, that's that's the show in a nutshell. It's nothing. Speaking of shows that amount to nothing... This week we're going to see Bad Out of Hell, the Meatloaf musical, so I can report about that next week. I think it'll I think something. it'll be fun. Yeah. It's yeah. going to be long, because speaking of long songs... Good. The music will be good. So, we go from one of the cheapest shows that we've seen... Should we talk about Korean Oh, sure. Okay. Um, we also, Saturday night, we were at the Delacorte in Central Park the for... Shakespeare in the Park. And they're doing Coriolanus. Um... Are rarely performed. Yeah, they hadn't done it in 40 years, which um, was nice to see. I don't even know when the last New York production of it in general was. It's uh, I don't think I've ever seen it here in New York. It's an odd play, and it's a slight play for a, it's, a Shakespeare It's one play. of the least dynamic of all of Shakespeare's yeah, works, and, um, and it's one of the least um, interior. 
there are fewer, yeah. fewer, fewer soliloquizing. And there's no B plot. Well, there's no B plot in Othello either. But um, there's not many characters. There's not. Um, the landscape is smaller. Small. It's a smaller play for a Shakespeare play. It's one that, even though that I um, consider myself a Shakespearean <laughs> and uh, studied a lot of his work in as an undergrad and grad school and wrote my thesis on his work, um, had never read and didn't really know anything about it, but um, I thought the production in the park, directed by Daniel Sullivan, was very easy to follow. Um, I was never confused. Were you, did, would you, did you find that? I was, no, I was definitely not confused. Yeah. Um, and like I said, there's not that many characters. The language isn't as dense, although there's a lot of great language in it. Um, like, if you didn't know what was... If you had never seen Othello, I could see you getting more confused by a play like yeah, that. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, but Coriolanus is... I don't want to say surfacey. I don't want to say, like... It's straightforward. It's straightforward, it's yeah. A, when you look at some of the more artful of Shakespeare's works, this will never number yeah. among them. Um, I loved the 2012 movie version starring and directed by Ray Fiennes. I thought that was a, a really searing take on it. Um, but uh, this is an odd take. It's not a confusing conceit. I don't think it wholly works, but it's interesting yeah. enough that I gave myself over to it and never regretted it. And n- never thought too much more about it, like in terms of poking well, I, holes in it. It's in a, like a sort of futuristic dystopia. Yeah, it almost feels like Mad Max. Yeah, I called it Solar Babies. 30 years later, but that's probably mm-hmm. a very obscure reference for anyone who's not Doug. Very, but it's post-apocalyptic. Everyone's sort of wearing whatever they can find. Yeah, garbage. That sense. Yeah. Uh, except that Jonathan Cake as Coriolanus is in the tightest joggers I've ever seen. Yeah. I don't know how they survived the apocalypse, but okay. Jonathan Cake is essentially wearing workout clothes and a Keanu Reeves accent. <laughs> we'll get to him, though, but, uh, uh, but I, I guess it works for that idea of, like, the the rabble being hungry and the patricians hoarding all the food. Um, and I love, I really did love the set. It was pieces of, like, Shrapnel? aluminum. Yeah, yeah, it was like metal, yeah. and metal siding, it looked yeah. like, um, that built this. Movable wall house um, that kept moving and opening up, and it really worked for me. The, the lighting was great. Um, Sound know, effects were good. Yeah, too. real. Yeah, I like the music too. Real atmospheric. Um, the acting overall was fine. I didn't think anybody was particularly. I don't awful. think anything. No one was particularly awful. No one was particularly. Extraordinary. Yeah, I liked Jonathan Cake, accent aside. I don't know why. I guess he's supposed to sound like every man, even though he shouldn't. Is that, that was my take on it, but he's doing this Keanu Reeves meets Bane yeah. <laughs> accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's odd, especially given that he has such a great British accent. Yeah. And, um, and, and then delivers Shakespearean verse so well. Yeah, with I don't know, but he was still very strong. 
Um, Kate Burton was fine. She was Kate Burton. Yeah. Lewis Cancelmi, maybe not so great as... Uh, he looked good. Of Phineas, yeah. But, like, you know... Yeah, everyone in the show clearly goes Enid, to the gym all the time. Enid Graham and, and John Jonathan Harriday were very good. Tom Nellis. Um, Teagle... I don't know how to say this name. He was Plato and Socrates. He was very good. But I, I don't think anybody really had the opportunity to shine. I don't know if right. it's the text or I don't know if it's... It was the production. The direct, the, yeah. Daniel Sullivan is sort of ho-hum for the most part, especially recently. Um, he's sort of just like, here's the script, here's the stage, do it. Um, I don't think he's really expressed have any technique or any concepts. Yeah, no, I agree, <laughs> like I, I agree. Like, there's nothing, he's very straightforward, which is why MTC loves him. Um, but, like you said, I was glad to see Coriolanus, um, especially with all the lightning going on that night. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's that, the thing, it's, I'm so tired of the same, of trying out the yeah. same works. I'm much a dude about nothing out. I'm King Leard out. I'm Twelfth Nighted out. Yeah, Macbeth. I'm just over them. Um, I, yeah, I did like it more than Much Ado earlier this season, earlier this summer. Um, and they were about the same length, and Coriolanus flew by for me. And, you know, the public, they always try to make these things timely, and they always try to have this they'll have this note from Oscar Eustace in the program about how we can connect it to what's going on in our current society and it's like it's Shakespeare like just do it like we don't the need, is the thing. yeah like we don't need an excuse to do Coriolanus yeah, we, we don't, don't need, need to reinvent excuse. how it looks for it to work right um, we just don't and it's also like we don't need these like high concepts like we don't need an excuse to do Shakespeare. Right. And and I really like the Othello they did last year um, with Corey Stoll, um, directed by Ruben Santiago Hudson. And it was very straightforward. Yeah. And people it didn't like that. Yeah, yeah. It was the play. People were like, I don't want this. And it's like, well, why does Othello have to be in a spaceship? Right. <laughs> you know, like, just do it. And a lot of the times it's like, we have this, you know, Coriolanus, for example, is this post-apocalyptic society and we're still talking about Rome. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, you never really, it, it doesn't really get around those things. But, like Doug said, it, the play's a thing, and just trust the material. Because it's brilliant. So, yeah. trust it. So, um, uh, you know, we're recording this on August 5th, and um, Coriolanus is opening tonight, basically, as we speak. But... It only has one more week in its run, because that's the way the public does Shakespeare in the Park. It has about three weeks of previews and then one week post-opening. So if you can get to it, if you can find a way to get free tickets, um, go for it. It's definitely worth seeing. It's definitely worth knowing. Um, so there we go. Coriolanus, better than Broadway Bounty Hunter. <laughs> and what I was saying before was we go from the cheapest looking show I've seen in a long time, Broadway Bounty Hunter, to one of the most money looking <laughs> shows I've seen in a long time, which is the now Broadway version of Moulin Rouge. Now, Alyssa is a fan of the film. Yeah. I like it. I think what I think of the show is what I thought of the movie, which is it's a lot of fun. I love the spectacle. The story is done. Yeah, and I think they've this is 
one of those shows that are like a new trend where we just decide we want to make a musical out of Moulin Rouge or whatever it is, and then we'll plug in plug in the book writer, the director, the score writer. Um, so it feels like Boz Lerman was like, well, I want to put this on stage. Um, he did not <laughs> hire a score writer. So it uses mostly recent pop songs, I mean major pop songs, like Single Ladies and Chandelier and Bad Romance. Firework. Um, Firework, so very recognizable songs. There's some older stuff like Burning Down the House and Let's Dance and I Want to Dance with Somebody. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, so it there's a cobbled mishmash score that is fun, but I think for me... It's fun like as a party favor. Yeah, for me, takes away from the show. Yeah. Um, it uses some songs from the movie, like Lady Marmalade and Come What May. The Elephant Medley, to an extent, there's a new, there's a lot of new medley to it. Even dispersed, yeah, newer songs that were in the movie. Roxanne is sort of used, it's used, but in a, sort of in a different arrangement. Um, the problem with using these is everybody knows them, and when they start singing, the audience laughs because, and it's not even, it's not funny, they're just laughing at, because they recognize, they recognize the song. They recognize it, yeah. So it adds a campiness to the whole night, and I never quite knew if the show is in on the joke, or if it's, you know, if it's tongue-in-cheek, or if we're just being inappropriate, um, especially towards the end, where the big... Aaron Tveit, who plays Christian, is that the character's name? Yes, yeah. Christian. Uh, has a big, heartfelt 11 o'clock number that's crazy by Niles Barkley that mashes into Rolling in the Deep by Adele. And everyone's laughing, and I was like, I think this is supposed to be like the high this emotional This is really heartfelt, yes. Yeah. Um, and like I said, I don't, it's not, I don't think it's meant to be comedy. It's just people are like, oh, I get it. I know this song. I'm in on the joke. Um, and it goes on all night. And so it makes the whole night sort of feel bizarre and also gives, and Doug said this, but it gives a sort of like Las Vegas or cruise ship. Yeah, there's show. a tackiness. There is a tackiness to it. Like, more so than exists in the film. Yeah, if we were going to do like songs from the 2000s, you know, songs from the aughts or whatever. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and the film did it too, but the film made, you know, it used Queen songs and it used whatever else, like your Elton John Elton songs, John. but it, I don't know, using Katy Perry, like, Firework is the big I want. Well, the, this is, this is part song. of the, uh, the trouble, and, like, it is a lot of fun to sit through this whole show. You see the money, I mean, the choreography, the, the lighting, the sounds, the costumes, the sets, all wonderful, but when you actually get to trying to feel anything for your two leads, so... For those who've never seen the movie, don't know anything about the plot, um, it is set in 1899, 1900 Paris in Montmartre, however you actually say that. Um, and, and Christian, 
now played by Aaron Tveit and originated by Ewan McGregor in the film, is uh, a, a writer, he's, he's a, a musician, um, who has uh, now come from Ohio in this version, um, and is poor and also thunderstruck by this courtesan played in the film by Nicole Kidman and here by Karen Olivo. Um, and while they are, like, immediately smitten with each other, there are a couple obstacles. One is the fact that she's dying of consumption, and the other is the fact that this rich count um, is a duke. Is he a duke in both? Yes. Oh, he's a duke. Um, uh, has essentially paid for her services. Um, so it's sort of like an isosceles love triangle going on here. Um, but what it really is, is an excuse for all of these <laughs> songs to be retrofitted into, um, first the movie and now the, the musical. And Baz Luhrmann was able to do it in a really exciting, I'd say even exhilarating way, like, because of the cinematic syntax of his direction. Um, and that's a little bit different with the Alex Timbers directed version of the show, but also we don't really understand that there's any chemistry or connection between our two leads and they're not given any songs the way a typical musical would early enough for us to truly identify with or understand them. I mean, we mentioned the song Firework, the Katy Perry song that is really a gay anthem. Um, Karen Olivo sings that as Satine halfway through act one. And I'm not sure I understand what she's singing about? What is bothering her? What does she feel disenfranchised about? Her job is to lie for a living and give suckers a good time. And so what does she want to change or feel differently? We don't really get stuff like that. So if you're not looking for understanding or character development or chemistry, then you can just enjoy the stuff. There are a couple other pros I'd like to mention. Um, one is the actress and dancer Robin Herder, who we praised months and months back for uh, a short run of a chorus line in, in which she um, played the lead, Cassie, or the closest thing one has to a lead in a chorus line. And um, she's magnificent here and has not one but two awesome tango numbers. Um, she's the closest thing we get to sex or sexiness yeah. in this show. She does things that Karen Olivo can't. She does things that Aaron Tveit is not given the can. chance to. I, and I the other one, and who who is the other performer we would like to single out for Moulin Rouge, dear? Danny Burstein? Yeah. Yeah, he, it's on his best work. Uh, I've seen him, I, he's one of my favorites. And Great Broadway band. By this point, he should have four Tony Awards, but um, he... He plays uh, Harold Ziegler. Is that his name? Is that his name? Sort of the MC. He's essentially the MC. Head, like, owner of the club. The the role that Jim Broadbent played in the movie. Um, he He's not given a lot to do. He's fine. He doesn't... Um, he's really the only one who overcomes the material without being chewing the scenery and without being too sticky. Um, so it works. He does what he's required to do. Tam Mutu, as the Duke, I must have the count, <laughs> is very good as well. He's very hot. <laughs> he is very sure. hot. I would have picked him uh, if I was Satine. But uh, he does get a lot of 
I was almost embarrassed for this. Because of the dialogue or his songs? His or what? songs, like, he has to sing Fresh, So Fresh and So Clean, which I think is a Snoop Dogg song, and he does a Rolling Stones medley, which... Oh, right, yes, he, he introduces does, himself singing yeah, Sympathy for the Devil, yeah. Yeah, he does, and he also does um, Rihanna's Only Girl in the World, so it's like, and it's a prime example of what I'm saying, it's like, are we in on the, are they in on the joke? Like, is this intentionally funny? Because he's got some foolish material, you know, he's got to look like yeah. a fool. But it, I never think we're supposed to laugh at the Duke. Um, yeah. The book is, the book by John Logan is, is, I'm not going to mince words, it's awful. <laughs> And he wrote the book for Superhero, which was the Tom Kitt musical that was at second stage earlier this season, or earlier this year, last season. And that was awful, too. So, um, he needs to stop writing books for musicals. His plays and his screen, um, his screen plays are great. He was the showrunner on Petty Dreadful, which was one of my favorite shows in the last ten years. But, I don't, I don't know. The book is terrible. There's no chemistry between the two leads. There's a lot of telling and not showing. It's not a subtle show. Yeah, you know, all we just are told that they're in love. And, you know, she, all of a sudden she dies. It's one of, you know... Yeah, I mean, and one of the other main characters is Toulouse-Lautrec, who, like, would you even know he was an artist? If you didn't know anything about him, you would think he was just the playwright. They made him into a playwright, or he's writing this play that they're supposed to be putting on at the Moulin Rouge... Um, they don't do anything to make Sar and Gaja, who's playing him, look short. Short. Um, I guess they could have done that thing with uh, Lord Farquaad and Shrek and made him on his knees right, the whole time. Right. But it is tough to do. Um, the, you know, the Duke calls him Little Man at one point. I guess that's supposed to satisfy it. Yeah, but, but it's like, you don't look cane. little. What, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's, I know I keep saying this all night, but it's like there's no B plot. There was no B plot. There are like practically no other characters other than there's like five characters, right? There's like six, maybe six, yeah. like Robin Herder's character and Ricky Rojas's character, who I don't even know what he, has a name. he did. He may have had a name. I think they hired him just because he can. He tango. can do the tango. He, he did Again, tango. Two great tango back. scenes. One to the one to Bad Romance at the as the Act Two opener, which is yeah great. But all it is, it sets but it up. It was like, oh, meanwhile backstage there was another love affair brewing, and but we don't get any book scenes between um, Robin Hood's character Nini and Ricky Rojas's character. We're just told they're in love. Um, there's nothing to take us away from Christian and Satine. And I wish there was, because... It's a hollow sort of love yeah, story. Yeah, and the least, Not enough to build a full I really story like on. Aaron Tveit, but he has no charisma. Like, I can think of a million other people who I would have liked to see in that role. Um, Karen, Karen Levo's not my favorite. I've actually never liked her, full disclosure. Yeah, full disclosure, me neither. Um, there's something Sorry. about her that I never feel that she's vulnerable on stage, that she really connects. She's always very tough. She gives really tough performances. Um, I just never buy her and as whatever character she's supposed to be playing. Uh, I think she's miscast. Again, there's 
a million other people I would have liked to see in this role. Um, they just don't, they didn't, they just, she just doesn't fit the team. Aaron's fine. He doesn't really have much to do, and he's saddled with this terrible narration um, and a really bland character, but I think if you're going to spend so much time with the leads and they're not very interesting, um, that's a problem. Were they interesting in the movie? Only a bit more so because it's a movie and we had tight close-ups and there were people like Ewan McGregor doing heavy lifting. Uh, I mean, I think that's imbalanced in the film because I don't think Nicole yeah. Kidman is at his level. But. And in the end, like... It's basically like, oh, I die. Here's my bloody yeah. handkerchief. And you feel, and I felt nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And there, I mean, certainly, they, we've talked about, there's no sense of restraint here, but there's no limit. I mean, this show opens with Lady Marmalade performed in the same style that the song that was, like, the single off the soundtrack of Moulin Rouge was. And then they close the show again with it, and then they do it again during curtain call. It's like, once was already good. But I guess it's like, you know what the people want. And well, you're trying to brand something. Yeah, a lot of the comments I've seen about it are like, oh, well, the spectacle is great, you know, it's a lot of fun. I guess it's fun. It, um, is, fu it, it is fun. The spectacle is amazing. Yeah, you know, if you're looking for substance in Moulin Rouge, you've come to the wrong show, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, but I want to have fun, and I also want to... But if you're going to spend millions of dollars to yeah. put on a show and take over a theater, like, put a little work like, into it. This is a weird comparison, but the show I keep comparing it to is Rock of Ages, where Rock of Ages used um, a mishmash of 80s hairband songs, and um, they... Knew, but it's like the that book was written in a, in a way that they knew what they were doing and they were in on the joke. It's also supposed to be a comedy, but it's like it's like Moulin Rouge does everything Rock of Ages does well, not well. <laughs> yeah, that make any sense? I love Rock of Ages. That show is a ton of fun. Um, it just extended off Broadway, so yeah, I recommend that. <laughs> yeah, it's lowbrow done well. Yeah. Yeah, but that's the thing. It's like, it's not, it's lowbrow, but it's like done, yeah, like you said, it's done at a higher level that, like, makes sense. Whereas, like, Moulin Rouge, it's like, you know, he says to her, he's like, oh, why don't we just shut up and dance? And then they do Shut Up and Dance by Walk the Moon. I think. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, really? We're, gonna, we're really doing that? Um, but I still recommend it if you can get a ticket or afford a ticket. It's a high, it's a, a, definitely a high high price, hard ticket to get at this point. But, you know, it's one of the few musicals I think we're going to get on the Great White Way this year. No, we've got, like, Jay Little Pill coming. And Tina. Girl from the North Country. And Tina. And so, Six. And... So it'll be, like, one of five or six or seven that we get. Crazy for you. This will end up being... <laughs> and, this, uh, at least as a show that I sat through for two and story. a half hours and enjoyed. Yeah, um... I would, yeah. I liked it more than some of the things that got a lot of praise last year. Let's just say that. Agreed. And so there we go. We got Broadway Bounty Hunter, Coriolanus, and Moulin Rouge playing now and forever. Probably. At the Alhurstville. Um, and I think there we are. I think we've talked about it again, guys. Definitely check out Dairy Girls. And let us know what you think about 
the shows we've talked about, for better or for worse, but hopefully for better. Go to Back on the Block Pod on Facebook. Please rate us at iTunes. Um, we hope you've enjoyed having special guest Alyssa again. Uh, we'll see if we can get her again soon. We're deep in the, the throes of a lot of different reality TV going on, so we're going to have to get you back at some point <laughs> to talk about your favorites and your non-favorites. Um, and that's about it. So we will see you again on Hollywood Boulevard, and also we hope you find your way to catch us back on the block. Bye. <laughs>